Much research, from a variety of sources, has gone into the compilation of this material. To my best knowledge, the material contained herein is factually correct. Not for persons under the age of 13. We've all been there before. You come home with a blinding headache, and walk straight to the medicine cabinet for some pain relief. You've recently stocked up on your painkiller of choice, and there it sits on the shelf, encased within its plastic tube. Relief is just a moment away but first, you have to get past the tamper-proof seal, that thin twist of plastic that holds the lid to the container, and must be broken before you can access the pain-relieving pills within. Usually, this requires no more than a twist but today of all days, when your head is pounding and your palms are slick with sweat, today the blasted seal holds on as tightly as if it were protecting some priceless relic. Today, it just won't give. Eventually, cursing, you carry the tube to the kitchen and hack through the protective seal with a knife. By now your headache has been ratcheted up at least two notches, and you find yourself cursing the idiot who designed the stupid packaging. Sound familiar? Tamper-proof packaging, of course, is a fact of modern life. In an era when all manner of crazies believe they have a cause worth killing for, where manufacturers face massive lawsuits should their products cause harm, you just can't get around it. But there was a more innocent time not that long ago, when such measures did not exist. Back in those days you could pluck a bottle of painkillers from the shelf, screw off the top, and find no more protection than a wad of cotton wool. It was a state of affairs open to exploitation by some ill-intentioned individual. In 1982, in Chicago, Illinois, just such an individual emerged. And the results were devastating. Welcome to Crimes of Yore, and I am your hostess Anna Karenina. It started on the pleasant fall morning of September 29, 1982. 12-year-old Mary Kellerman of Elk Grove Village, Illinois, was at home nursing a debilitating dose of flu. Her mother, as any good parent, would keep her in bed and well hydrated. Mary's bothersome cough was addressed with an over-the-counter remedy, and her pain and fever with an analgesic. The product was Tylenol Extra Strength, America's favorite painkiller. A few hours after Mary popped one of the pills, her mother came to check on her and found her dead. That same morning, a 27-year-old postal worker named Adam Yannis of Arlington Heights, 
Illinois, took a couple of Tylenol to relieve a headache. He promptly collapsed and died later that day in the hospital. A few days later, Adam's brother Stanley and sister-in-law Teresa were gathered with other relatives at Adam's home for a remembrance ceremony. Stanley had been very close to his brother and Adam's death had hit him hard. He'd slept very little in the days since Adam's unexpected passing, and on this particular day was nursing a stress headache. Teresa fetched him a couple of Tylenol from the medicine cabinet, and feeling poorly herself, she also took one. Within hours, both had collapsed and died. In the days that followed, reports of unexplained deaths kept coming in from the Chicagoland area. Mary McFarland, 31, of Elmhurst, Illinois 35-year-old flight attendant Paula Prince of Chicago, and Mary Rayner, a Winfield mother of four who had given birth just a week earlier, all collapsed and died without apparent reason. By now, the police had established a connection. In each of the cases, the deceased had taken a Tylenol capsule. With the common link established, the authorities and Tylenol's manufacturers, Johnson & Johnson, sprang into action. It was clear that someone had tampered with a batch of the painkilling drug, and that was quickly confirmed by the autopsy results. Each of the victims had traces of potassium cyanide in their systems. How the lethal poison had come to be in the capsules was far from certain. At first, it was assumed that some rogue Johnson and Johnson employee had poisoned a batch of Tylenol. But that was quickly ruled out. The tampered with bottles came from different production facilities and had been bought at different retail outlets. Clearly, the sabotage had occurred on the shop floor. Working on this hypothesis, investigators decided that the killer must have acquired bottles of Tylenol from various supermarkets and drugstores, taken them home, and contaminated them with cyanide. The lack of tamper-proofing and the form the pills were in a capsule would have made this easy. He'd then have returned to the stores and placed the contaminated drugs back on the shelves, waiting for some unknowing victim to pick them up. The police would spend thousands of man-hours viewing surveillance footage from the various stores. They didn't see the killer. They did, however, spot victim Paula Prince innocently making her fatal purchase at a Walgreens store. The authorities had not been idle during this time. Urgent warnings had been broadcast via the media, cautioning citizens to avoid taking Tylenol. Meanwhile, police cruisers trundled through Chicago neighborhoods issuing the same warnings over loudspeakers. Johnson & Johnson had also responded quickly, initiating a mass recall of its suspect product. This was a massive undertaking. An estimated 31 million bottles of Tylenol were in circulation across the country, with a retail value of over $100 million. Only two more contaminated bottles would be found, but Johnson & Johnson nonetheless gained universal praise for its swift action. The tainted drugs had now been withdrawn from the retail shelves. But the question remained, who was responsible for contaminating them? 
What kind of a monster would knowingly introduce poison into a widely used product, turning a trip to the drugstore into a deadly game of Russian roulette for thousands of innocent people? And to what purpose? The police had not yet answered that question when a letter arrived at the corporate headquarters of Johnson & Johnson, demanding a payment of $1 million to stop the cyanide-induced murders. That letter was quickly traced to a tax consultant named James William Lewis, living in New York City. Checking into Lewis's background, the investigators made a startling discovery. In 1978, police in Kansas City, Missouri had carried out a raid on his then-home after a tip-off. In the basement, they'd found the dismembered corpse of a man, who turned out to be one of Lewis's former clients, it had looked an open and shut case until the trial judge ruled that the police search of Lewis's home was illegal, resulting in the charges being dropped. James Lewis might have dodged a bullet in Kansas City, but he was out of luck this time. Chicago P could not prove that he'd been responsible for the poisonings, but they could prove attempted extortion. Convicted on that charge, Lewis was sentenced to 20 years in federal prison. He was out in 1995, having served 13 years. In the interceding years, the investigation into the Tylenol murders had ground inextricably to a halt. A couple of high-profile suspects, in the form of Unabomber Ted Kaczynski and would-be spree killer Lori Dan, were investigated and cleared. So too was a man named Roger Arnold. In his case, being named as a suspect would have tragic consequences. Arnold blamed a bar owner named Marty Sinclair for passing his name to the police. In the summer of 1983, he decided to take revenge and gun down a man he thought was Sinclair. The victim turned out to be a total stranger. Convicted of second-degree murder, Arnold drew a 30-year prison term. There were other collateral victims too. In 1986, a copycat killer contaminated Excedrin capsules with cyanide in Washington state, resulting in the deaths of Susan Snow and Bruce Nichol. Nichol's wife, Stella, would ultimately be convicted of the murders and sentenced to 90 years in prison. That same year, Procter & Gamble was forced to withdraw its Incaprin capsules from the market after an anonymous caller claimed to have spiked stocks of the drug. The call turned out to be a hoax, but it cost the company millions of dollars. The Tylenol poisoning case did, however, have one positive outcome. In its wake, the pharmaceutical industry was forced to introduce tamper-proof packaging to prevent a recurrence of tragic events. Tamper-proof technology has subsequently been adopted throughout the food and beverage industry, and is now mandated by the FEA. As to who the perpetrator of the Tylenol murders was, that remains a mystery, despite one of the most extensive investigations in U.S. history. And the case is not over yet. In January 2010, both James Lewis and his wife were ordered to provide biological samples for DNA testing. In 2011, the feds made the same request of Ted Kaczynski. 
That same year, a Johnson & Johnson whistleblower suggested that the poison Tylenol had actually been tampered with at source rather than at a retail location. Whatever the truth of the matter, one thing holds true. Something was lost in the fall of 1982. As author and crisis management expert Stephen Fink put it, whatever innocence we still had in the summer of 1982 was quickly shattered by the fall. Jealousy is a natural human emotion. It is, however, when emotions run high that all rational thinking is lost and situations among friends and acquaintances can become a chain reaction of out-of-control decisions that ultimately lead to the death of innocent people. This story profiles the true criminal case of friends who killed and were convicted of murder. What could possibly drive a friend to kill another friend? This shocking case profile will be a real brain tweak for listeners. This story of a Facebook dare magnifies the impact social media has had on society, and especially young teens. Friends Who Kill Friends, The Story of Murder Over Jealousy, Love, Sex and Dares. Murdered for a Baby, The Story of Tiffany Hall. Jamela Tustle was a beautiful young, 23-year-old mother of three, living in the eastern suburbs of St. Louis, Illinois. Seven months pregnant with her fourth child, Jamela certainly had her hands full and often relied on her friend Tiffany Hall for help. Tiffany was 24 years old and the mother of two who often babysat Jamela's children, and Jamela often returned the favor. Jamela and Tiffany had grown up together, and both had attended alternative schools. They were longtime friends, often doing favors for one another, babysitting each other's children, and generally offering support to each other, as they were both pretty much in the same boat. Little did Jamela suspect that her friend Tiffany was planning on stealing her baby. It was a hot September 15, 2006 when Tiffany killed her former friend and tried to deliver her unborn child. She failed. Police later found Jamela's body in a nearby field, though they had determined that she had been killed and operated on in her own bathtub during Tiffany's failed attempt to snatch her seven-month-old baby from its womb. The tub where she had killed Jamela and attempted to claim Jamela's baby. It gets worse. Tiffany attempted to hide the murdered children in Jamela's washer and dryer in the basement laundry room of Jamela's apartment complex. 
On the 21st of September, a funeral was held for the stillborn infant that Tiffany had literally kidnapped from Jamela's body. Tiffany pretended to grieve, but she couldn't maintain her act, nor keep her story straight. Tiffany's boyfriend was present at the funeral, having received military leave, thinking that and until Tiffany told the truth, the stillborn baby had been his. Unfortunately, Tiffany had told so many lies up to this point that she couldn't keep them straight. Apparently, she admitted to her military boyfriend that he wasn't the father of the baby, and she then blurted out that she had killed the infant's mother. He didn't even hesitate. He called the police, who in short order, arrested Tiffany and found the bodies of the missing children. They also found Jamela in a vacant lot, wrapped in a shower curtain. An autopsy on her body showed that scissors had been used to cut the baby out of its womb. What compelled Tiffany to murder her pregnant friend, cut her unborn child from her womb, and kill her three children is not known to this day. Tiffany was arrested, jailed, and held on a $5 million bond. Her charges of first-degree murder, and intentional homicide of an unborn child are one of the most horrifying in St. Clair County, Illinois to date. Courtroom testimony proved shocking. St. Clair County State Attorney Robert Hyder stated that Tiffany had struck Jamela repeatedly on the head with a table leg at Tiffany's mother's house. She then cut Jamela's growing fetus from her womb in the family's bathtub, and after Jamela bled to death, wrapped her in the shower curtain, and dumped her body in a vacant lot in East St. Louis. It turns out that Tiffany's attorney claimed that Tiffany was mentally fit and able to stand trial, but that she had unresolved mental health issues. She had tested in the mid-70s following an IQ test. Throughout the process, Tiffany showed no remorse or regrets over her actions, and never did mention a motive for the horrible crimes she had committed. Tiffany pled guilty to the four murders on June 9, 2008, in a desperate effort to escape the death penalty. She was sentenced to life in prison without any chance for parole. My conclusion, chances are that as long as friends hang out together, there will be occasional discord, arguments, and claims of betrayal. To most of us, the reasons people give for murdering someone else are stupid and senseless. Nevertheless, to the people involved, emotions run high and long-term thinking in such situations is usually a gift of hindsight rather than rational thought processes, at the moment. So what's the answer? There is no simple answer. Respect for life, respect for others, and occasionally, Agreeing to disagree may help save a life or two. Problem is, when jealousy rears its head, rational thinking is usually the first thing to be tossed overboard, and it is then that everyone suffers.
greatly appreciate your review of this podcast. I thank you for spending time with me today. If you like to listen to mermaid stories, then please type in your search box mermaids and join me every Tuesday for a mermaid tale. Till next time, and remember, when a man is denied the right to live the life he believes in, he has no choice but to become an outlaw. Don't compromise yourself, or you're all you have. Crimes of Yours prepared and read by me your hostess Anna Karenina.